This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. More than 100 world leaders gathered in Copenhagen on December 7th for a two-week summit meeting whose ambitious aim is to renew the Kyoto Protocol on climate change. The issues being discussed include reducing emissions of greenhouse gases and setting a price for carbon, among others. What are the likely business implications of these issues? What new challenges and opportunities will they create during the coming months? Knowledge at Wharton discussed these topics with Wharton Legal Studies and Business Ethics Professor Eric Ortz, Howard Kunruther, Wharton Professor of Decision Sciences and Public Policy, and Erwan Michel Cajon, Managing Director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, as you know, there's a, a lot of green rhetoric that is going to come out of uh, uh, Copenhagen uh, for the next few days. Uh, Based on the discussions that are going on, uh, what do you think are two of or three of the key issues uh, that the world leaders who are meeting there should be focusing on? Uh, and what are their business implications? Uh, Eric, would you want to start with that? Well, I think, uh, I think the, on the key issues that are – the main issue that is going to be faced is what is the world to do about this problem and what is the next step after Kyoto? And so that's the major major question. There'll be a lot of comments, uh, commentary about that. Um, from a business perspective, I think that the main news is that there's going to be a cost put on carbon emissions as well as other greenhouse gases, and that that's not primarily because of anything that the international community will do at Copenhagen, but because of the Obama administration's position on this issue. Um, and uh, that's good. It's key for businesses to think about this. And many leading businesses are already thinking about this issue. It's one of the reasons we're having an annual conference workshop in March uh, here at the Wharton School on this topic. Uh, and the reason it's going to matter for business is increased costs, mainly for energy. And so, and the reason that that will increase is either there will be legislation passed in the United States. There are two competing versions right now. And for a long time, we've had legislation uh, proposed but not, not adopted. But the second important event that just occurred last week is that the Obama administration's EPA has had an, made an endangerment finding for greenhouse gases. What that means is that the EPA will be directed to go forward and seems to be going forward and will, will regulate in this area. And the details remain to be worked out, but I think for businesses it's clear that there's going to be an increased cost. Two other items, and we can get into it more if you'd like. One is businesses are experiencing increased pressure from consumers and from suppliers. So uh, there's some examples, but many businesses are seeing that there uh, is a greater interest in these issues from their consumers and need to respond to that. Walmart is probably the biggest example that a lot of businesses are seeing as very important, where Walmart has decided to take a stand and has put a significant amount of pressure on their suppliers uh, for various uh, for, for not only um, greenhouse gas uh, footprints, but also, uh, also other criteria. And then the last point is, uh, I think there's increasingly uh, an ethical imperative for businesses. Uh, businesses are realizing this is a major issue that's facing everyone, and they need to be doing something about it and to be seen to be doing something about it. 
Uh, thanks, Eric. Uh, Howard, what, do you, what are some of the long-term issues that businesses need to be thinking about uh, when you think about the discussions at uh, Copenhagen? Well, first, uh, let me say, uh, Michael, uh, I really want to resonate with what Eric has just indicated in terms of the responsibility that business has and their willingness to actually take a uh, position on this and actually take a proactive position, and Walmart being certainly one example. Jared Diamond had a very interesting piece in uh, the Sunday New York Times on exactly that point, on the responsibility of businesses. Walmart, in fact, was mentioned as one of them. Uh, Coca-Cola and I believe Chevron were other examples. And so you ha- you do have business who is really taking this much more seriously uh, for ethical and moral reasons and also because I think that at the end of the day they see the bottom line as being really important to them with consumers not only demanding it but being able to produce better products at perhaps even lower and more efficient prices. Uh, but let me turn to your question on the long run. I think that one of the real challenges we have in this area and global climate change epitomizes that is that we kind of think about what's going to happen next year. Uh, and we are not talking about something that is going to be radically changing next year, but everyone agrees, despite the fact that there's a lot of controversy, that over a period of 20 or 40 or 50 years, you're going to have significant changes, and you can have all sorts of disagreements, but I think that's what the scientific community is certainly agreeing with. Um, having, Having said that, the challenge, I think, is how do we begin to get uh, longer-term strategies for uh, addressing this. Let me say a word about the energy area and then turn to some of the work that uh, uh, Erwan and I and a number of others have been doing on uh, the natural hazard front, and Erwan can will then say a bit more about that. On the energy area, we have a real interesting challenge of getting people to adopt more energy-efficient appliances, and that's a long-run proposition in the following sense. There's an upfront investment cost. Uh, people are not willing to incur that cost because they say it's too high relative to the shorter-run benefits. If they have short time horizons, they don't see the energy savings from that. But there are also the global uh, climate change impacts. So you do have energy co- companies that are now working to try to address that issue by developing strategies for getting people to incur that cost. And uh, Duke Energy being one example and other companies as well, where they will say, we'll incur the upfront costs, perhaps, and then in the process give you, you'll, you'll pay this back over time with the energy savings with respect to appliances. That immediately takes things out of the notion of incurring these costs and getting everyone to recognize that there are these long-term impacts, but you have to give short-term incentives. This is essentially the direction that we have been trying to pursue in some of our work in uh, the new book that we have at at War with the Weather uh, that was published uh, this past summer, uh, where a whole group of us began to look at strategies for dealing with the natural hazards risk. And one of the questions that can't com- constantly comes up is, is there an appropriate role uh, for insurance coupled with adaptation or in the hazard term mitigation measures to reduce essentially the damage from, the pro- from property? And the basic notion that we are at least pushing is thinking about long-term contracts, thinking about long-term insurance, thinking about long-term loans and ways to encourage adaptation. And that will help not only the individuals or the consumers but it will help in the context of having to deal with the climate change problem. And the hope is that there'll be some of this that will come out in Copenhagen to think more than just next year, uh, but over the long run. And Erwan can say a good deal more about some of the issues on the adaptation side. 
Uh, sure, Erwan, could you uh, perhaps help us think through the adaptation versus mitigation issue that Howard just brought up? Sure, let me, let me be brief so we can talk about other important things here. I think when it comes to global climate change, um, you have to think that in two ways. One is the old debate we have had for many, many years now, I mean, even before Kyoto, about what we call mitigation, which means basically, can we reduce so-called greenhouse gas emission? That's point number one. And a lot of that will be discussed in Copenhagen. Uh, what is interesting to me is that Copenhagen didn't start its opening with that. They started the opening in Copenhagen with that notion of how we can better adapt to a radical change in climate. Whether that change happened next year, it's not clear, obviously. As Howard mentioned, more likely over the long term. But how do we as societies adapt to this changing climate? Uh, with major, major implication for uh, businesses, but also for elected officials and citizens uh, in countries ranging from European countries to India, China, and obviously here uh, in the US. So how do we start thinking about the adaptation to climate change in something that will be discussed at length in Copenhagen? in a way, as I mentioned, I was not before. So that's point number one. Point number two, when it comes to these issues, what can we do? That was your question to, to Eric before. Uh, two things. One is really how can we make sure that the environment is sustained? How can we make sure we reduce our pollution? What economists call externalities, how can we internalize these externalities? That's one. But also how can we create value out of this new environment by creating new products, new services that were not in place five or 10 years ago. And many businesses are looking at that uh, value creation today more than ever before. And obviously having a price on carbon will help because that gives you a framework as to what cost what. We'll come back in a moment to what kinds of products and service opportunities businesses can have. But before we get into that, Eric, I had a question for you uh, about the whole uh, science versus non-science kind of debate. Uh, <clears throat> Even now, I think there are a number of people who seem to question uh, the amount of uh, scientific data that really exists uh, to, to indicate the real risk of uh, climate change. Uh, what's your view on that, and, and uh, how, how should we be thinking about that? Well, first of all, I should say I'm not a scientist in this area, and so therefore I don't have any specific uh, uh, research agenda in this area. So I'm basically someone who tries to remain to be as informed as possible about what the science is out there. I think one, one way in which people get caught up on this issue is that they're looking for some certainty. And so they'll speak about a scientific consensus, even if it's uh, a UN-based group of scientists, which is the IPCC, the International uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, the fact is that there are many scientists who don't necessarily agree with various kinds of uh, uh, issues. There, the, the area of climate change research is very complicated, and so to get into it um, uh, requires uh, a, a great uh, uh, some time and some uh, willingness to get engaged with the material. I think the, the takeaway for me, though, is that there are a number uh, uh, of leading scientists who have been looking at this issue for a long time, and that they indicate that the, the best research seems to indicate that there is at least a significant chance that uh, we're going to have a serious shift in climate that is going to have very serious consequences. I, don't, I, I think we are already starting to see uh, that some of those predictions seem to have some, some uh, weight. So you see glaciers retreating at a faster pace than even some of the 
some of the scientists had been predicting. You have the disappearance of Arctic ice uh, much faster than uh, most predictions were going to uh, indicate. You have biological, biodiversity implications. So there seems to be a lot of uh, confirmation. There there seems to be a significant confirmation that at least something's happening, or at least there's a high probability of something happening. And that's that's the main point, I think, that's a takeaway here, is that given the scale of what we're talking about, the climate of the entire planet, and the fact that it's, it's, we're having a measurable influence, influence and effect on that, then there's a significant risk that this is serious. And there's not a lot of experiments that one can run about this uh, if uh, the, pr- the predictions are there will be a long-term uh, consequence. And even if that is, say, 10% chance, 15% chance, then I think it's uh, worth considering. So just to name, I, you, you do hear in the press uh, extremes, but I think the extremes can come on both sides. So let me just give two examples. One is Freeman Dyson at Princeton, who has uh, uh, cast some serious doubt on some of the climate models that are used for scientific research. Now, that may be right, it may not be right, um, but you also have to look at the big picture, and you, you have other scientists, and I'll give you an example of James Lovelock uh, from Great Britain, who has recently written a, written a book, and on the basis of just observations, not including any climate models, suggests that we might be about to have a radical, abrupt shift where we would have a significant increase in the temperature of the, of, the, of the global climate very quickly, which would immediately raise all of the questions that Erwan uh, mentioned about adaptation, only on a 5 to 10 to 15-year time scale rather than a 50 to 100-year time scale. Now, what's the probability of that? We don't really know. The point is that this is a significant risk, and that, I think, is one of the contributions that we can make uh, here at the Wharton School with, uh, with, with Howard Kunruther's work uh, and the Risk Center's work on uh, looking at the risk and the importance of a risk. You don't need to have certainty to understand that this is a very serious issue that we should be taking some steps to address. Well, I think Eric raises the, the critical issue here that uh, we know things are cha- there's enough consensus that things are changing. But the real challenge is that when you have experts, as uh, Eric has illustrated with these two extreme examples, who will put forward a position, you're going to have people latching on to those positions. And you're going to have a lot of conflict and controversy because we all look for our own favorite expert to defend our position. And, that often, and the media will pick that up as a part of it. So So I think the real challenge uh, in doing this is to say we do have uncertainty here, but we can begin to look at steps that can be taken that will be really valuable to take in the adaptation and and the variety of things we've been talking about and that uh, on the business side and as well as on the consumer side will not only help in the climate change area, but will help in other areas as well. And to the extent that we can make this a broader issue where climate change is certainly critical, and that's what Copenhagen is about but also that we are going to see the benefits that can come out on these other dimensions, we may be able to get a consensus and a way of really going forward. So that would be at least the challenge we face when the science has all this uncertainty surrounding it. Yeah, and it's not just climate change. I mean, I think climate change is really uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg here. Is how can we make, to take one example, how can we make our global supply chains more efficient? Uh less costly. So the final product is, is less expensive. I mean, these are broader issues that just how we impact the climate, that's for sure. On the catastrophic side, just to echo uh, Eric's point, uh, we're already seeing that. We're already seeing major unprecedented natural disasters happening all over the world. 
uh, on a path that is radically different than what we've seen before. Natural disasters are not new, uh, obviously, but when you get one major natural disaster every six months in, in the world, that becomes an issue. That's already an issue with uh, a globe with six billion people. That would be even more an issue when we reach nine billion people in a, in a few decades. Yeah. If I could just say one other point about that. If, if, if we aren't going to take some steps uh, from the vantage point of the public sector really coming in and indicating that this is something that one has a responsibility for. We may have some real challenges because of our myopia and what Aaron is saying about the catastrophic risk. It's precisely in these areas we see megacities developing in hazard-prone areas. We see very, very little in the way of regulations and land use controls and even building codes that are put in place may not necessarily, you know, or there are regulations may not be in and so I think there's really a need for the public sector to play a key role in recognizing this uh, in, the, in combination, obviously, with the private sector. Coming back to the uh, question of products and services uh, that companies can create uh, and innovate around to help deal with some of these issues, where do you see some of the most promising opportunities for companies and how can these markets be developed? Well, let me take a crack at that quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm more on the finance side here. Uh, a few examples on the adaptations have been the development over the past, depends on which one you looked at, but 5, 10, 15 years of financial product that did not exist before. Um, some of them were teaching in, in class, OPIM uh, 761, is, well, weather derivatives, for instance. It's not necessarily related to climate change, but it's related to weather events. So weather derivatives is one. Uh, catastrophe bond is another one, how you can edge the risk of a major hurricanes or even earthquake, actually. It doesn't have to be climate related. Uh, all the new product related to carbon trading, I mean, all of that, you're talking about multi-billion dollar market emerging or growing very, very fast worldwide. So uh, just to take one example, the financial world is definitely looking at that as a business opportunity, no question. Well, I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll, I'll answer the question on the product side. We had a conference uh, last spring uh, as part of our uh, initiative here, a conference workshop on life cycle analysis. And... Uh, I think there are a number of examples of companies that have taken a leadership role in the use of life cycle analysis or on the management side it's called life cycle assessments to look at um, what is the cradle-to-cradle footprint of their product. So you look at um, what are the resources that are used, what's the efficiency of the manufacturing process, and then how do consumers use the product, and then is the product reused or recycled. Um, just to give a couple of examples of, I think, of, of companies that are leaders in this area, uh, Patagonia, uh, which I think is an interesting company because if you're looking at recession-proof companies, Patagonia was a good one. Unfortunately, it's privately traded, and so it's a private company, and you could not have invested in it. Uh, but uh, there are, uh, another example is uh, Interface, which happens to be a, a sponsor of our, uh, a, a corporate sponsor of our, our initiative. Uh, but Interface uh, was, is a leader in recycled carpets. And they also are uh, an example of one business strategy that seems to work at least sometimes, and that is switching from a model where you're just selling a good and then forgetting about it to looking at something like supply of carpets as rather uh, supply of flooring. So that you enter into, and this goes back to uh, Howard's point about long-term contracts, 
that in many respects a long-term contract to provide flooring might well be more efficient from a cost perspective, but also uh, definitely from an environmental perspective. Uh, and so companies are starting to look at that kind of process a little bit better. Uh, I think this will also start to uh, uh, head into the automotive sector, where you've seen this in Europe, where companies are uh, manufacturing automobiles so that they'll be recyclable. Uh, you might eventually even have take-back policies for automobiles rather than in junkyards. They'll just be designed to be remanufactured uh, at the end of their useful lives. Um, another example... Uh, Another example would be computer product or electronic products, which right now are a fairly significant problem in terms of waste. And there's a very quick life there's a qu very quick life use of electronic uh, products like cell phones, laptops, etc. And people just throw them away. I think you're going to see that that's not uh, really going to be a viable strategy over time, and that there will be. Uh, there'll be different models that will have to be uh, have to be taken. So I guess the last point here would be to emphasize a, uh, a point I made before, which is a lot of this a lot of this is going to be driven by consumer demand. In my my opinion, now it's hard to predict the future. Some people say, well, there's a big recession in the world, and so nobody cares about the environment anymore. I don't think we've really seen that uh, from the perspective of companies. And I think the reason why is that. Uh, I think they expect that there will continue to be a fairly significant push and that um, my sense is, and uh, you can't predict this for sure, it's very difficult to predict what young people will do, but my sense is that this generation is going to push forward very strongly on the consumer side and where uh, uh, those companies are going to be able to uh, creditably, creditably offer green products and services are going to be uh, winners in the long run. The only point that I would want to add to what uh, Erwan and, and, and Eric have said is that um, if we are going to be sort of developing new products, we have to have the appropriate incentives to, first of all, get the consumers to want them. And, I, and, and people can talk about green, and I think that's an important element, but they're also going to ask how much is it going to cost, how much am I going to have to pay, and there's always that issue that is going to be part of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we see uh, the energy companies do try trying to figure out how they're going to deal with precisely new products, but make them attractive enough for the consumers to want to buy them. The other aspect of this is as you begin to start taxing carbon, as you begin to start doing that, you're going to have economic incentives for developing new, uh, new products simply because of the fact that they're going to be a more efficient way of producing them and the demand for them will be there just on the basis of their price if that tax is built into the cost of the product. So I think we have really an interesting challenge here with respect to how we bring them all together in such a way that people can begin to see that it isn't just a matter of global uh, warming, but we need all of these other ways of dealing with uh, the short-run challenges that firms face in order to be able to deal with the longer-run strategies that we all believe are necessary here. I have just one final question for each of you, and it's exactly the, the same question. Uh, <clears throat> instead of being in Philadelphia today, if you were in Copenhagen this week, uh, what's the one piece of advice that you would give to all the world leaders who are gathered there? Well, I would, I would advise the world leaders to not just stay in the main forum where the negotiation is taking place. There's actually a – but to get out and see what's happening outside of the official forum of Copenhagen – and see what's happening outside of that. And I, I'll, I'll give one reflection on why I think that's important. I went to the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro uh, a number of years ago now, 
And the most interesting thing that I learned when I went there was not uh, when I accompanied the U.S. State Department and heard the diplomats making these very ha- having their various negotiations, but actually going outside, uh, seeing what other groups were doing. And it was clear at that point that a number of major businesses were shifting their perspective. It was no longer going to be we're against environmentalists. Let's just keep hold them at bay. You had a lot. Uh, you had a number of major businesses that were shifting and deciding to uh, become leaders in this area. So I think it'd be interesting to see what's happening outside of the official uh, area. My guess is you have a lot of uh, grassroots organizations that are going to uh, have some legs following uh, whatever whatever happens or doesn't happen in Copenhagen. Well, uh, I think you want to focus on issues where there is some opportunity for people to come together. They don't have to be the biggest issues in the world, but they have to be issues that everyone can say this is a way to go. I'll illustrate that with my colleague at Columbia, Jeff Heal, who has been thinking a lot about climate change over the years. And he says, look, deforestation is one area you really, really want to begin to understand what the implications of that are. And there's a lot more consensus on that than there are on some other issues. And it may be something that you could get the part together to think about ways, steps they could take. This would be done for two reasons. One is it would show at least there is some agreement on some issue where you have some, everyone sort of saying this is an important problem, which could be a lead-in to a number of other things that could happen. And the second thing is that the consequences of that, if everyone realizes what happens here, can be sufficiently large that one would say we better pay attention to that. But The basic point, and you know I'm going to say this, but I will say it very clearly, is we want to avoid the Nimtoff philosophy. We want to avoid the myopia, the not-in-my-term-of-office philosophy, and have the leaders of the world, and I think they are trying to play that. I certainly think that President Obama sees it that way, and your Prime Minister of India, I think, will hopefully see it in in a similar way, as well as uh, others, to think about how you don't want to just have something that is going to have pay off in the next few years, but over the long term. And to the extent that that is something that could be transmitted in Copenhagen, we'll have a real good chance of maybe longer running strategies emerging over time. Nicaragua, you have the final word? Well, I don't know whether it's final or just the introduction for the next discussion. Uh, well, I think the United Nations should feel good about who's, who's going to Copenhagen. I mean, they have a remarkable list of leaders joining forces in Copenhagen. I don't see Copenhagen at the end of the story. I just see the continuity of Kyoto and as uh, Howard and, and um, Eric mentioned before, the fact that a lot has have happened over the past 15, 20 years, a lot. I mean, this is simply a different world than where we were uh, pre-Kyoto and, and post-Kyoto for sure. Uh, one piece of advice, because if you're elected official of one country, obviously you go to, to, um, to Copenhagen and have discussion with others. Uh, the real difficulty for you back home, whether it's here in the U.S. or elsewhere, is how could you scale down the discussion you had in Copenhagen to your own country? What does that mean for my country? Uh, had a good time talking with other heads of state, but what does that mean for my country? And I think certainly this administration in the U.S. is, is pushing pretty hard. Uh, Howard and I uh, briefed the White House a few weeks ago on these issues, um, mentioning that because that's not just a climate issue. Uh, that's an economic issue, that's a national security issue, that's a healthcare issue. So there is more to Copenhagen than just climate. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.